What I'm, my plans are today, my plans are today is to, is to kind of continue in the same thought and the same trend that we've been in for the past month or so. Pastor Malcolm has been preaching about do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I, I thought, you know, I don't want to leave from that. I think there's still a lot to unpack in that area. And, and so if you would allow me to, today we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. And, and Nehemiah is a great book. It's one of my favorite books because it, it speaks about God's provision in a difficult time. In Nehemiah chapter 1, Nehemiah gets a burden placed on his heart to go rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. See, the previous book in Ezra, you find that they've rebuilt the temple, but the walls are still in, destroy, in, in desolation. So Nehemiah says, I want to go rebuild the walls. He gets permission by the king, Artaxerxes, to go. Nehemiah chapter 2, he goes there and he inspects the walls at night. And he realizes how bad it is. So Nehemiah chapter 3, he rallies all the people of Jerusalem together and he begins to tell them, here's the game plan. We're going to rebuild this wall. It's going to take some work. And so Nehemiah chapter 4, they get to work, but some punks named Samballat and Tobiah, some outsiders, enemies of Jerusalem, begin to intimidate them and try to talk smack and get them discouraged. But God had different plans. And so they continued building on the wall. Nehemiah chapter 5, there's some internal things going on in, in, the, in the people of Jerusalem and people of Israel. Nehemiah has to clean house and settle some things, some arguments. Nehemiah chapter 6, you see they complete the wall. The enemy wasn't, uh, couldn't advance against them and the wall was completed in 52 days. In Nehemiah chapter 7, Nehemiah realizes that the people of Israel have kind of left the town of Jerusalem. And so he starts calling people back and finds out who are the rightful people that belong to Jerusalem. Along with going through the genealogical records, he finds there's some people living there who don't need to be there. So he starts kicking them out. He's, he's rebuilding the right way. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they say, we need to hear the word of God. So Ezra the scribe goes and grabs the word of God and begins to read it to the people. And the people become broken because they realize how sinful they have been, how disobedient to God they have been. And so in Nehemiah chapter 9, where we're going to be at today, is kind of the response of the people after hearing the word of God preached what they do. So Nehemiah chapter 9, starting in verse 1. It says, Now in the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. And the seed of Israel separated themselves from the strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one fourth part of the day, and another fourth part, they confessed and worshiped the Lord their God. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you so much. Thank you for temple. We thank you for this atmosphere that's in this room. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who, who, who draws near to us. Father, I pray that you would speak to us. Lord, use me this morning. Pour into me, Lord. Help me remember all those things I studied. God, help me eliminate those things I don't need to say, but Lord, that you would take center stage. And that, like, let this be all about you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Thank you all so much. Um, on Wednesday nights, which if you're not coming to Wednesday night, I want to encourage you to come. We have been doing a series called the Spiritual Disciplines. And the Spiritual Disciplines involve things like prayer and reading and fasting and, 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 and tithing and, and, and evangelism. All those things that as believers of God we should be doing because God in us is compelling us to do those things. This past Wednesday I talked about the topic of Bible intake. Bible intake. Uh, I, I challenge you to read your Bible, to read, hear, and study the Word of God. 
I, I preach out of Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, which speaks about the whole armor of God. It says, put on the whole armor of God. He, he talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, uh, shodding your feet with the preparation of the gospel, wearing, girding your loins with the truth. He says, take the, verse 17, he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And we kind of focused in on verse 17 where he says, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And he kind of unpacked that. And what I love about that is because it says it is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit, which is, that is the weapon that we are to use in our offense and our defense. In Luke chapter 7, when Jesus was being tempted in the wilderness, what did he say? He says it is, the one weapon he chose to fight against the enemy was the word of God. And if Jesus used the word of God in his attack against the enemy, how much more do you think we need the word of God to attack the enemy? And so he says it is written. We need to take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. One of the things I realized when reading the book of Nehemiah, if you go to chapter 14 of, of Nehemiah, chapter, I'm sorry, chapter uh, 8, verse 14 of Nehemiah. Chapter 8, verse 14 of Nehemiah. It says, and they found written in the law which the Lord had commanded by Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths in the feast of the seven month. In other words, they started reading, they realized there's some things we're not doing that we should be doing. And, and so they got to action doing those things. You know, there's some things in the Word of God that you may not realize you need to be doing. And so they began to read the Word of God and become, become convicted over those things. If you, if you continue reading, if you go to uh, 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 verse 9, I don't know if I gave it to you boys in the back. It says, Nehemiah, which is the Tersherath, which basically means the governor. And Ezra, the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people, said unto all people, This day is holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Why did the people weep when Ezra got up and broke out the word of God and began to read it? Because they began to realize some things. They began to realize some things. They had a church... And they had, a, they had a wall, but they didn't have God. They realized they had drifted far from God, and it broke them. And so one of the things that we realize when we come in contact with the Word of God, there's, there's going to be a great realization. Number one, a realization. As you read the Word of God, God will expose things in you that you maybe never realized before. Jesus... Time and time again tells us that we should read. He says, have you not read? He says, man should not live on bread alone, but out of every word that proceeded out of the mouth of God. He says, you need the word of God. And so the people began to read the word of God and they realized how far they have fallen from God. And they began to weep in sorrow and they begin to start practicing those things which they knew they should be practicing. See, here's, here's what we got to realize. This word... This word is our weapon. It's a weapon of offense and a weapon of defense. See, here's what you need to know. It's a defensive weapon in the form of apologetics. Apologetics is a fancy word that basically means to defend your faith. To defend your faith. 1 Peter 3.15, he says, Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man to ask you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. He says you need to know the word of God so you can give a defense for why you are the way you are. Yeah. He says when people come against you 
and begin to question your faith. You need to know the Word of God to give it an answer. Because why? Because when people can create doubts in your faith, it will weaken your faith. But the more that you know this Word and you can defend your faith, it will, it will, it will disarm those who are coming against you. This is the form of apologetics. We need this as a weapon of attack to go and, and to defend ourselves from those who come against you. I can tell you right now, your kids in school are going to be attacked for their faith. When I was a college student, I took some classes at a community college in Panama City. And I had a, uh, uh, um, uh, what is it, Western Civ. I had a Western Civ teacher. And I promise you, hand on the Bible, this happened. The very first day of class, he stood up. He says, if anybody would denounce their faith, I'll give them an automatic A. An automatic A. He was known to be very uh, atheistic, very, he would attack anybody who claimed there was a God, and he would come against you, and he would try to disarm your faith. But I knew enough about the Word of God that he couldn't touch my faith. I knew enough about the Word of God that I was established in my faith. But I'm sorry to say that there's some people who have claimed to be Christians for a long time that don't know enough about the Word of God to defend even what they believe. This is the word of God in which we should use as a defense against those who come against us, but not only as a defensive weapon, but an offensive weapon. What does that mean? Well, here's the thing. We don't need to stand idle. We're not coasting into heaven. All right, we need to go into the enemy's territory, snatching people out of the flames of hell. And here's what we do. We need to take the word of God with us because it is the word of God that has the power to convert, to change, to correct and so if we know the word of God, we can go into the enemy's territory and snatch him out of the flames of hell. You need to know the Romans road. All right, if you are a believer in this place, you need to discipline yourself to memorize the scriptures so that you can quote them from memory to people who need to know the truth. You need to know Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.8, but God commended his love toward us, and that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believeth, to the Jew first and to the Greek. You need to know so you can go into the enemy's territory and attack them. But how, how important is it also to know the Word of God for those own personal struggles you have? Maybe you battle with depression, anxiety. Maybe you have a restless mind. Maybe you battle with doubt. Maybe you, you battle with lust. Maybe you battle with certain things in your own personal life. I'm telling you right now, you need to know the verses that's going to help you the most in those struggles. You need to file them away. So when that struggle comes up, you're able to quote it from memory and able to disarm the enemy. My little girl, I love my little Addison, but she has a very anxious mind. She worries about everything. I don't know if it's just a teenager in her or what it is, but she worries about everything. She's very anxious. She thinks about every what-if situation that could be. And so we constantly quote to her 2 Timothy 1.7, But God has not given you the spirit of fear, but of power, love, and of a sound mind. And we sit down with my little girl and say, Addie, listen, baby. God has not given you a spirit of fear. You know that, don't you? Yes, sir. What has God given you? He's given me power and love and a sound mind. Absolutely. And so we're able to start pushing away the darkness with the word of God. In this context, in Nehemiah, 
See, I love what verse 17 of Ephesians says. Y'all don't have it, but I, I'm just going to quote it. You know, it says, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. I love that it says it is the sword of the Spirit because it is. The Holy Scriptures are what the Holy Spirit uses to wound us. The people of Nehemiah were wounded. The people of Israel were wounded when they heard the word of God. Listen, it is going to be the word of God that God will use to awaken you to your disobedience in your life. The reading of God's word caused them to be wounded. Verse 8 of chapter 8, it says, They began to weep when they heard the words of the law. Become wounded. It brought them great sorrow and remorse. They They were regretful that they have gone so far from God. Listen, the word of God will encourage you, but the word of God will bring you back into line when you're in disobedience. Think about this. Think about how many times in the past couple months that, that Pastor Malcolm has preached a serious message. And, and this serious message has wounded some of us. Think about when he preached about modesty. Ooh, y'all didn't like that one. Some of y'all, when y'all heard, because here's what I want to say about Pastor Malcolm and this church. Whatever you hear preached from this platform, there is Bible, chapter, and verse to back it up. You're not going to hear man's opinion. You're not going to hear man's judgmental criticisms. You're going to hear the word of God proclaimed. All right. And so Pastor Malcolm gets up here and he delivers his messages with chapter and verse. And some of y'all become wounded. And you start considering, should I change churches, change pastors, or change my clothes? I don't know what I need to do. But the word of God has wounded me to do something. Listen. We've talked about do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we've talked about the issue of compromise. And we begin to declare the word of God and people become convicted because they realize there's some areas in their life they've been compromising. And this woundedness causes them to adjust in their lifestyle. A couple weeks ago, I preached on the issue of pornography. One of the hardest messages I ever had to deliver from this stage because of the topic. But it wounded some of you. And some of y'all have taken action. Listen, we're starting a class next Sunday about a, about a way to overcome this problem in our life. And this is a class for men. We have over 20 men signed up for this class. I praise the Lord for that. I really do. Because what happened? They got wounded by the word of God. And now they realize this is an area in my life I need to adjust and need to fix. And so now they're taking action to do something about it. The word of God will expose your flaws. James, in the book of James, he compares the word of God to a mirror. He says you look into it and it exposes the areas you need to change. And so the people of of Israel, as they read the word of God, were wounded and they realized, they realized what they had been doing. In Galatians chapter 3, in verse 24, he says that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Why is the law, the word of God, a schoolmaster? Because when you begin to read the word of God, you just see how holy he is and how sinful you are. And you begin to realize that there is no way you could ever compare to his righteousness and his holiness. And so it, it affects you in a way that you realize that you need a savior. It is the law that exposes your shortcomings. And that way, that, that way you know that you need a savior, which is Jesus. In Psalm 119.11, David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is David saying? He's saying, it is your word that keeps me from sin. 
But can I tell you on the reverse of that? It will be sin that keeps you from this word. And so the people of Israel living in sin, they have neglected the reading of God's word. And so as everything began to get rebuilt and all of a sudden they said, you know what? We need the word of God read to us. And as they began to read the word of God, they they were wounded because they realized their transgressions and their sins. They had a great realization of their sin. And let me tell you, this great realization led to number two, repentance. Repentance. Look look in verse one of chapter nine. He says, Now on the twenty and fourth day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them. They were fasting. Fasting in the Bible is always partnered with prayer. Always partner, and it's most of the time in the Bible it's used in a, in a form of repentance. Now, I'm not going to go into a whole, whole lot about fasting because on one of our Wednesday night studies, we're going to cover the topic of fasting as a spiritual discipline. And so if you want to know more about that, here's a free plug to come on Wednesday nights. We'll talk about it. But there's ten different times fasting is used in the Bible, but most of the time it's used in the format of repentance. And so right here, right now, the people of God are hearing the word of God, realizing how far they have come from God. And this realization has now drawn them to repentance. And this repentance comes in a form of fasting. Do you know that fasting is mentioned more times in the Bible than baptism? Yet it is one of the most underpracticed disciplines of Christians. We don't fast. Not most of us. A biblical definition of fasting is a Christian self-denial, voluntary self-denial of food for a spiritual purpose. It's a voluntary denial of food for a spiritual purpose. And so the people of God began to fast. Now, now let me tell you this. Without a spiritual purpose, if you're fasting, it's just a diet. If there's really no spiritual purpose behind you missing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, then you're just starving yourself, all right? There has to be a spiritual purpose behind it. it at breakfast time, when you would normally, normally be eating, you get down on your knees, you begin to pray to God. Lunch times, instead of going to get you a meal, you spend time in your word praying to God. Dinner time, you separate yourself from the table, and you go into a quiet place, and you begin to pray and seek God's face. That is what fasting is about. Throughout Scripture, we see God's people fasting, especially when there's anything that's urgent. The people obviously felt urgent about their spiritual condition. Because the very first thing to do is to begin to fast. But fasting, let me tell you, fasting is not a way for you to manipulate God to come into your will. All right, fasting is not a hunger strike. I'm not going to eat until you bless me. That's not what fasting is. Fasting is basically putting God on notice that what you're praying about is urgent. That what you're praying about is special. That what you're praying about has importance. That's why fasting is always accompanied with prayer. And here's what I believe. Since it was God who ordained the church and his people to fast, I believe he is pleased when he hears the prayers of his people. And they're also strengthened with fasting because that's what he ordained for them to do. I believe God is pleased when he sees his people praying and fasting. And so the very first thing that people do when they heard the will of God, they were wounded. They, They started praying and fasting. And they fasted for two purposes. Two reasons. Look with me in verse 2. It says, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers 
and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they were fasting and repenting for themselves first. Now let me explain what repentance is. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. That's what repentance is. It's a change of mind that results into a change of action. And so when you, when you partner your prayers with, with, with fasting, we are telling God, I am committed to a new direction in my life. I, I want to let the old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. I'm willing to let go and move forward. I'm willing to change my... The repentance is literally a U-turn. You're going this way and you turn and start going this way. That's what repentance is. It is a change of mind that results in a change of action. But if you're, repent, if you're fasting for any other reason other than true repentance, in other words, if you know in your heart of hearts you're not ready to let go of this thing yet, then anything you're doing through praying and fasting is not going to change one bit. Because you know, you know when you're ready to really let go. You know. Maybe there's something you've been struggling with and you feel like it's got a hold on you and you want to let it go. Have you tried praying and fasting over it? Have you tried letting God know I'm urgent, God? Please help me. I need some help in this area of my life. Can you please, can you please help me let go of this struggle in my life? Let go of this sin in my life. God, I need you. And and sometimes if we're not careful, though, we'll feel so convicted over a particular sin in our life that we'll use fasting like a form of self-punishment. Like like we'll we'll, we'll do it against ourselves as if we deserve this. I deserve to go hungry. I deserve to feel miserable because my sin has made me feel this way. No, fasting is not a form of self-punishment. Fasting is a way for you to get real with God. And so a great Puritan writer, he said this, he says, in vain will you fast and pretend to be humbled for your sins and make confessions of them if your love of sin has not been turned into hatred, if your liking of sin hasn't turned into loathing of sin, If your cleaving to sin has not turned into a longing to be rid of sin, with full purpose to resist the motions of it in our heart and the breakings thereof in our life, and if we turn not unto God as our rightful Lord and Master and return to our duty again. In other words, he's saying, if you go into praying and fasting for repentance for any other reason other than really (laughs) repenting, he says, you're doing it in vain. There's no point behind it. So how do we know? Well, let me... Stay on track here. So they're they're asking for repentance for themselves. Secondly, they're asking for repentance of others. Look what it says. It says that they began to confess their sins. Verse uh, chapter nine, verse two. They confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They begin to pray for repentance of others around them. Did you know you could pray for others around you, for their repentance? For them to come to know Jesus, for them to come and be right with God. You can pray and fast for others. I know it in my own personal life. There was a time I, I, I had my pawpaw. I always think about my pawpaw. Everybody needs a pawpaw. He was just an old country fella. He taught me how to squirrel hunt. He taught me how to fish, how to throw a spiral on a football. He taught me how to hit a golf ball. We'd always hit golf balls in his backyard into the woods, and then he'd make me go get them all. <laughs> That's what a pawpaw is. I love my pawpaw. 
Every Friday, he would call me. Hey, boy, what you doing? I said, nothing, Papa. He said, you want to come to Papa's house? I said, yes, sir. He'd come pick me up in his old blue truck. And I'd spend the weekend with Papa. I love Papa. And later in life, Papa got sick. I was in college at this time. I was actually serving in youth ministry at the time. And Papa got sick. And I prayed for Papa. I prayed that he would get saved. I prayed that God would do work in his life. You see, me and, me and Papa had a couple spiritual conversations along the way, but it's like he was never ready. He would ask questions, and it was like right then. I remember one time he, he said, I've been reading that Bible over there. Boy, my heart leaped out of my chest. I said, You have? He said, I got some questions. I said, Okay. He says, in Ezekiel, it talks about a big will and a little will. I said, oh, why would you? I'm like, what are you talking? I don't even know the answer to that one. What are you? And then and, and I, I told him, I said, Paul, Paul, there's some things I don't even understand in the Bible, I'll be honest with you. And then he says, well, there's something else I read about Jesus healing some people, bringing them back to life. I said, yeah. He says, there was a young boy that he brought back to life who'd been dead for a little while and a young girl who'd been dead for a little bit longer. And he says, and then there was Lazarus who's dead for four days. He's like, I don't understand why he waited so long to heal different ones. Why did he wait so long to bring them back to life? And it was like in that moment, the Holy Spirit just dropped in my heart. And I said, Paul, Paul, I think what the Bible's telling us is that no, longer how long, no matter how long we've been dead in our sins, we're never too far gone that God can't bring us back to life again. And he, he said, huh. And he just closed the Bible. And I was done in the conversation. And I thought, God, I thought that was going to be the moment. I really did. But Papa was getting sicker. And so I remember, I got serious with God. And I started praying for my Papa. And I started fasting. Literally fasting for two, three days. I wouldn't eat and I would pray for my Papa. And then one day there was a knock on my Papa's door. It was a Sunday school teacher from a church down the road. It happened to be his neighbor had gone to this church, and, and this was her Sunday school teacher, and he was, she was sharing in her Sunday school class that there was a man that lived next to her that was dying of cancer and uh, was just lifting him up and said, I just don't know if he's saved or not. Would you all just be praying for him? His name, is, his name is Robert Mashburn. And so this Sunday school teacher took it upon himself to go visit my Paul. And in that living room, my Paul's house, my Paul prayed to surrender his life to Jesus. And about a year later, he passed from this world onto the next. I'm so thankful for that. I believe God will hear the prayers of his people who are urgent and partner them with fasting. And I believe he'll hear them if you're praying for others as well. And you might be thinking, well, how do you know that? Well, I know that God heard my prayer because in 2 Peter 3, 9, I, I was praying for the Father's will. In 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so I was praying what the Father wanted too. I was partnered with God in prayer. But I believe also when I got on my knees and I was fasting and praying, I believe God saw the urgency in my life. He answered my prayer. I believe the people of Israel were urgent. They began to pray for their fathers. They began to pray for their, 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 their legacy. They began to pray for those around them. They began to pray for themselves. I believe God heard them because that's what God wanted too. And you might be thinking right now, well, maybe you're discouraged. Because there's been some things you've been praying about urgently. And you feel like God hasn't answered you the way that he should answer you. 
Maybe you feel like he's dropped the ball. That what you wanted to come to pass didn't come to pass. It, it, it didn't work out the way it want, you wanted it to work out. Can I just promise you something? Y'all, y'all listen close. Can I just promise y'all something? If you were able to know what God knows and to see what God sees, I promise you, you would have given yourself the same answer he gave you. Have you ever thought about that? If you were to know what he knows and to see what he sees, I promise you, you would have given yourself the same answer. None of God's answers are worthless. None of them. I promise you, you would have done the same thing. How do I know this is true repentance that the Israelites experienced? Because thirdly, we see there's a removal. There's a removal. Look in verse 2. It says, And the seed of Israel separated themselves from all strangers. You know what was going on? See, the people of Israel were marrying with the outsiders. They were, they were going and marrying with people of other belief systems. And because they were marrying, uh, marrying these people and influenced by these people, they started worshiping like they worship. They started in- introducing false gods into their own worship. And so the very first thing they did after confessing and fasting, the very first thing they did is they separated themselves from those influences. That's why I know it was real repentance. Because again, what is repentance? Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. And so the very first thing they did is they separated themselves from all the strangers. Can I tell you, if you really want to get serious with God, it's going to require for you to separate yourselves from some things. Is there something, a negative influence in your life? Is there a person? Is there something you're choosing to do, a habit, an addiction, a problem in your life that you need to distance yourself from and remove it? Can I tell you, I promise you, if you approach it through praying and fasting, God will allow you to be removed from this whole situation. Listen, when I was growing up and a teenager in school, God saved me when I was 17 years old. And I remember, I remember... The night it happened, it was after a Wednesday night service. I came home and I crashed down on my knees in that carpeted bedroom of mine. And I cried out to God. And I remember saying, God, in my prayer, I said, God, I am too weak to take this stuff out of my life. You're going to have to do it for me. And hand on the Bible, I promise you. See, I was dating a girl I should not have been dating. And we was doing things we ought not to have been doing. And I remember the very next day. I came to school, and this girl came up to me. I'm, in my prayer, in that prayer the night before, I said, God, you're going to have to do it for me. Take it from me. I even, I even capped it off with saying, God, make me sick if you have to, but take it from me. Very next day, this girl came up to me and gave me a hug, and I almost threw up on her. <laughs> and I mean, I felt it coming up. And so I kind of pushed her away. She said, something wrong? I said, no, I don't think so. And then later on that day, she met me in the hallway, and she tried to lean in for a kiss, and I felt it come, I said, ooh. (laughs) So I stopped her. And at lunchtime, we'd always go off campus for lunch. At lunchtime, she came close to me, and I started getting that queasy feeling again. And I said, why don't you go to lunch without me today? I'm going to stay here. She says, no, there's something wrong with you. We need to talk. I said, I don't think this is the talk you want to have. And so right there, during the lunch break at school, I broke up with this girl because God made me so uncomfortable that I couldn't even stand to be around her anymore. 
And it was from that moment on, I said, God, I'm done. I surrender. I'm done. And I said, I'm done with girls. Just, just when is your time? It's your time. I'm done. About three months later, I started sitting next to a pretty young thing named Tracy. And she was going, she went to my dad's high school that he taught at. He's a principal at. And I would sit down next to her during lunch because I'd go to my dad's school to eat lunch because he'd pay for it. <laughs> so I was cheap like that. And I would go sit next to her because she was, I always called her a teacher's pet because she would always sit with the teachers at the faculty table. And so I'd sit down to my dad and then Tracy would be at the same table. And it wasn't very short after that that I started liking this girl. And now here we are celebrating 17 years of marriage. What am I trying to say? I believe that God will bless you if you remove the things in your life that don't need to be there. Real repentance means that you are separating yourself from those things that are holding you back. And in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, the writer says, Wherefore, seeing also we are compressed, are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. He says, listen, you need to lay this stuff down. If you want to draw close to God, you're going to have to lay some things down and surrender. You're going to have to separate yourself. In Israel's situation, they were marrying with foreign people. And so here's what they said. They said, we're going to separate ourselves from these foreign people. Because the longer we hang around them, the longer we're influenced by them. Can I promise you this? You might have in your mind that you've got this hero complex that you're going, to, you're going to stay with this person that doesn't know Jesus because you're trying to save them. I promise you this. It is easier to pull somebody down than it is to pull somebody up. And the longer you hang around negative influences and negative people and sinful people, I promise you it will pull you away from God. And so God says you need to separate. You need to remove one of the first questions I ask when I do premarital counseling, and when I get asked to do a wedding, they say, would you preach my wedding? I say, absolutely I will. I always require that to do at least four to six weeks of counseling with me before marriage. And I'm talking about day one, we're sitting in my office, the first question I ask is, are you, are you living together and are you having sex? And you might be thinking, well, that's pretty intrusive. It is. But here's the thing. If they're expecting me, a man of God, to come and bless their ceremony and use the words holy matrimony, then we better start it out in a holy way. And so I tell them, I say, hey, if you are living together, then one of you has got to move out. And sometimes they receive it and one of them moves out. Sometimes they don't. And I don't hear from them again. That's fine. Sometimes they say, yeah, we, we, we have been having sex. I said, you need to stop right now. You need to abstain from here until the day that you're married. I said, you want God to bless this marriage? Yes, sir. Then you need to separate yourselves from that. Because God is not going to bless anything that you're doing that's sinful. God's opinion about sin does not change just because you're getting married. And so I tell them, you need to stop it. And, and here's the thing. If we ever expect God to bless us, we have to separate ourselves from things that are a distraction, things that are holding us back. If you want to pursue real holiness, you will have to separate yourself from unholy things. It makes sense, don't it? Hey, hey, if you, if you want to stop using pornography, then you're going to have to separate yourself from those things that trigger you. If, if you want to battle, you want to stop the, the addiction in your life, you're going to have to stop hanging around with the people that keep pulling you back into addiction. You're going to have to separate yourself from, from, uh, some, from some things. Acts 3.19, he says, repent. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out and that times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. 
1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is serious about confession. Now here's what confession is. Confession is you coming into agreement with God about your sin. What you might have been justifying your whole life as this isn't a big deal, this isn't a problem, I can handle this. No, eventually you've got to wake up to the reality that God hates your sin. And confession is you coming into an agreement with God saying, God, I know this is a problem. And I, I am sorry. And you repent. God's opinion about your sin is not going to change. I promise you that. God is too holy. God is too just for his opinion about sin to change. Listen, if you're living together, I don't care if you're about to get married. God's opinion about that didn't change. Listen, teenagers, if you're disobedient to your parents, I promise you it will affect your relationship with God. If you're wondering why your relationship with God has been struggling, it might be because your relationship with your parents has been struggling. It might be time for you to repent and confess some things and get right with God. If you are someone that's doing anything other than what brings glory to God, it will affect your relationship with God 100% of the time. No, no qualms about it. I promise you. I promise you. And here's the thing. For many of you in this room right now, watching that fair view, watching online, God has had something, his finger on something in your heart for a long time. It's not oblivious to you. You know exactly what it is. You know what it is. And you might have been trying to sweep it under the carpet. You might have been trying to ignore it. He's had his finger on it for a long time. For many of you, it's come to your mind even today while we've been sitting in this place. You know exactly what it is. If you're holding on to unforgiveness, I promise you that will affect your relationship with God. If you have bitterness in your heart, I promise you that will affect your relationship with God. If you have hatred in your heart towards somebody, you don't know what they did to me. I don't care. What did you do to Jesus? You hung him on a cross. And he looked down on you and says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Listen, the love of Jesus is able to cover a multitude of sin. And he says, we need to love people like he loves people. And so you need to let go of the hatred no matter what they've done to you. Because it will hinder your relationship with God. Confession is not easy. He already knew this was in your life. You know, you didn't surprise him when you confessed it. God, I've been struggling. I, hadn't, I haven't forgiven Mary for taking my parking spot. <laughs> I haven't forgiven her. I'm bitter about it. Listen, you're not going to surprise. God's going to be like, what? When did this happen? He's going to be like, I know. You've been, you've been carrying that around for a long time. Confession is you coming in an agreement with God saying, okay, I, I, I'm aware of what you're aware of now, God. I see it. And so after, after all of that, now there was restoration. After they realized the word of God and what it said for them, after they come to a place of repentance, after they come to a place where they remove those things from their life, now look at verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God one-fourth part of the day and another fourth, fourth, fourth part of the day. They confessed, and look what it says next. They confessed and what? Worshipped. Listen, you want to know what worship looks like? It looks like people of God getting right with God. That is what worship looks like. People of God getting serious with God. When you read the word of God, it'll change you. 
It'll transform your life. This is how God works. How does, why does God work this way? Because in Ephesians 6, 17, it says it is a sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God would wield His Holy Scriptures to bring His children back into obedience to Himself. And when His children come into obedience to Himself, all of a sudden, they begin to worship Him because there's no, nothing else separating them from God. They've removed all the distractions. They've removed all the idols. They've removed all the sinful tendencies. And now their relationship with God is clearer than ever, and they can worship Him like they've never had before. What, if you want to have a relationship with God in a real way, you've got to remove some things. If you want God's Word to wash over you like a tidal wave, you've got to remove some stuff. God's Word will expose any areas in your life you've been struggling with. It will scratch the itch that you can't reach. God's Word will convict you. God's Word will bless you. He will restore things that have been broken. It will breathe life into you. Why do I know this book will breathe life into you? Because it is a living Word. And it comes alive in the hands of its readers. We take this book too lightly. We don't read it enough. We don't study enough. Too many times we're going through the motions and we wonder why our marriages are a wreck. We wonder why our relationships are a wreck. We wonder why our finances are a wreck. We wonder why everything around us is falling apart. Because we're not serious about this. And God is trying to help you realize that some things are out of whack. And that realization is hopefully going to bring you to his word. True worship comes from seeing the bigness of God. Charles Spurgeon said, if you, have a small, if you have small sin, then your Savior is small. But if your sin is great, then your Savior must be great as well. We have a great Savior. Once you understand all that God has done for you, if you understood the position you were in, when God reached down, And pulled you out of that horrible pit, out of that miry clay and set you on a solid rock and establish your goings and put a new song in your your mouth. I promise you, once you realize the bigness and greatness of God in a way you've never seen Him before, it will cause you to worship. And the people of Israel began to realize who God is. I'm sure you've seen the headlines. I'm sure you see things about revival taking place. I'm thanking God people are seeking the presence of God. But I'm telling you right now, there has never been a revival, nor will there ever be a revival, apart from the reading of God's Word, apart from the preaching of God's Word, apart from the studying of God's Word. You can go look in history, the Awakenings, the Second Great Awakening, the Great Awakening. You can go read about the Welsh revivals. You can read about Jonathan Edwards and Charles Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. You can open your Bible, read the book of Ezra, read the book of Nehemiah, read the book of Jonah, read the book of Acts. And every time there was revival and people getting right with God, it began with with the preaching of God's Word. Why? Because it is the sword of the Spirit which wounds people and draws them back to Himself. There is no conversion, there is no consolation, there is no conviction apart from the Word of God. Revival comes on the wings of His Word. 100% of the time. The Bible is His sword. The Holy Scriptures in the hand of a Holy Spirit is what's transferred us from death to life. It is the Holy Scriptures in the holy hands of God that kills our sin. It is the Holy Scriptures in the holy hand of God that wounds our soul to confession. uh, confession. I, I pray, oh man, I pray that God would wield the Holy Scriptures like a scalpel to cut away the cancerous sin in our lives so that we can be restored to right relationship with Him. So that we can find a place where we worship Him again. Listen, I don't know how anyone can read his word and not be moved. Because when I read things like Romans 5, 8, it's my favorite verse. 
where he says, but God commendeth, what does that mean? He put on display, God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is, what is that word telling me? It's telling me God looked down on Andrew Heptonstall. He saw every mistake I made, every mistake I was currently making, and every mistake I would ever make. And there was nothing in that that he saw that would ever persuade him not to love me. He saw my life in full caption. He says, I love that Andrew. And I'm going to send my son Jesus to die for him. When I read a word like that, I become humbled. Because I know the greatness of my sin, but I know the holiness of my God. I'm thinking, how could a holy God like him ever love a sinner like me? But it's because of Jesus. And you can't help but read from cover to cover the Bible and find Jesus in every single book. I mean, in Genesis, he is Abraham's ram. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, oh my gosh, in Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the cloud by day and the fire by night. In Deuteronomy, he is the city of our refuge. In Joshua, he is the scarlet rope hanging in the window. In Judges, he is our judge. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet. In Kings, he is our trusted king. In Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he is the one who rebuilds broken things. I'm telling you, in Esther, he is Mordecai sitting at the gate. In Job, he is our redeemer who ever lives. You get to the book of Psalms, you find out he is the good shepherd. In Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he is our wisdom. When you get to, I, I'm telling you, I ain't done, you get to Malachi. In the Malachi, he says he is our Redeemer who ever lives, and he has healing on his wings. You step on over into the New Testament in the book of Matthew. It tells us that he is the Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one. You go to Mark, he says he is the servant. You go to Luke, and it says he is the son of man. You go to John, he says he is the son of God. You go all the way to Revelation, he says he is the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion and the Lamb. From cover to cover, you will find Jesus. I'm telling you, church. If you get serious about this word, it will bring you to repentance. It will bring you to remove the influences in your life that don't need to be there. It will bring you to a place where you're restored with him again, and you will worship like never before. Church, you want to see a move of God? You want to see people get serious with God? We don't manipulate God. We're not going to do anything that God is not proud of to try to muster up an emotion. God's God's word is enough. As you read it, let it wound you. Let it bring you to repentance. Let it refresh your soul. Let it motivate you to remove the things in your life Listen, you want to pursue holiness? Ask God to remove those things in me that are not holy. What are we trying to do? Romans says that we are to be conformed to the image of his son. So your prayer needs to be, God, remove anything in me that does not look like Jesus. Because I want to look like Jesus. 